Up next, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR, Reality Check Radio. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. We've got a great show coming up today. But first of all, a public announcement. Oh, so exciting. Well, here at RCR, we're on a mission. Uh, We want to revive honest media, the search for truth, letting all sides have a say to provide critical, uncensored stories, and to hold those in power to account and to talk to each other with respect. As Paul Brennan would say, it's a great mission. It's a good mission. But to make this happen, we need to grow, and we need to grow fast, and we need your support. The great news now is that there is an easy way to show your support by becoming a part of the team. Uh, while at the same time receiving some great benefits. So it's not all one way. You can join our RCR Foundation Members Club. That's it, the RCR Foundation Members Club. You'll get a hopefully a great sense of pride that comes from contributing to something that's big, uh, something that matters, something that's making a difference to be a part of it, but also RCR Foundation members get to enjoy a host of exclusive benefits. One of these is a special event, a backstage pass sort of thing, happening online this Sunday evening on the 6th of August. I'll be there along with my co-hosts, Peter Williams, Paul Brennan, Cam Slater, and Marie Buskey. Learn more about the membership. You'd be surprised how little it'll cost and what a big difference it'll make. Learn about it at www.realitycheck.radio. On the show today. Oh, my goodness. Ashley Church is back. We're going to be talking to him about what being a believer in Christ and being a Christian has meant for him personally, rather than what we did first up about what it's meant for society and for our history. I'm looking forward to it so much. He's a deep thinker, and he can reflect on the experience to the benefit, I believe, of us all. Also, oh, joy of joys, we're going to the Bay of Plenty. We're going to the Good Farm. Oh, it's well named, the Good Farm. They do everything in a good way. And we're going to be learning about one of my passions in particular, raw milk. Milk that's not been cooked, milk that's not been pasteurized, homogenized, and all the other iced, just milk straight out of the cow, just like nature intended. So beautiful. Yeah, you're going to love hearing about the good farm, I'm sure. I'm so looking forward to that interview. You with Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on Radley Check Radio. Thank you for coming along this morning. What I want to achieve with RCR is conversation. And I think we have lost the art of conversation. With RCR, I just hope that people can learn that we can all be different, we can have our own opinions, have our own views, and have those conversations in a respectful way. Because respect needs to be given, it needs to be earned, and I think that we can prove that people of all diverse perspectives, ages, opinions, can have a platform, and we can work and talk together. And so that's what I hope we get to achieve with RCR. Just independent thought alternative thought and I I expect that I will be castigated by many people for offering different opinions 
But you know, as I've said before, there is no such thing as a wrong opinion. Opinions are like noses. Everybody's got one. The exchange of views, fair debate, no cancelling, no interrupting, no aggressive responses. We want to hear what people have to say. Whatever side you're on. And the listener, the consumer, with that information, can make of it what they will. That is the mission. It's a good mission. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057, that's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. You're on Rally Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde and Raw Milk. I've been uh, talking about it a little bit on the show. Well, we've got the experts and the producers on. We've got Lauren Gibbs, who's a raw milk supplier, and his father-in-law, who works with him, Daryl Anderson. And they're going to tell us what we need to know about raw milk. They're in the Bay of Plenty. They've got a farm called The Good Farm, which is just the best name for a farm. I'm amazed it wasn't already taken, just calling it The Good Farm. How cool is that? And into everything healthy including raw milk. So I'm going to start with you, Lauren. What is raw milk? Right. So essentially raw milk is um, milk that hasn't been um, played around with. Um, All we do is put it through a paper filter, similar to a coffee filter um, style, and we chill it down and put it into a a refrigerated unit, and that's it. We don't pasteurise it. We don't homogenise it. We don't muck around with it at all. So w- when you buy milk from the supermarket, it's been pasteurised, and that's a heat treatment, right? Yeah. And that gets rid of bugs in the milk. Yeah, so it does. It kills uh, – pasteurisation kills bacteria, good okay. and bad. It just it, – it essentially sanitises the, the milk. So it becomes an ert. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a, and, and the ho- homogenization, that's just where they shake it up. Um, in, its, in its simplest form, yeah. They, from my understanding, is that it's um, mixed until the, the particles, the fat particles in the milk become so fine that they stay blended together or stay. Mm. Um, was uh, emulsified with the milk, mm. so that it doesn't separate. Mm. Okay, and um, when you, I should declare my hand. I'm a raw milk fanatic, um, so I'm sort of trying to play dumb a wee bit because I just uh, uh, a great um, booster uh, for raw milk uh, for two reasons. Uh, well, three. One is it's extremely tasty, and I just. We got raw milk the first time 10 years ago, 
And I hadn't drunk milk for my entire adult life. And when I drank this, a glass of this raw milk, it was the most beautiful drink. And I was back in my childhood. It was so beautiful. And you get the cream on the top. The second reason I love it is because it's so much healthier because you're getting the good bugs um, that have 200 million years of evolution have delivered to us through mammary glands. And the third reason I love it is that the authorities are so against it. Like, it's been horrific. So that's by way of background um, to the raw milk. Now, your milk comes straight out of the car. You run it through a paper filter and presumably end up putting it in a bottle or a container of some sort and selling it. Um, so we we have a dispensing unit. So um, it goes into a little vat that is wheeled into a um, refrigerated dispensing unit um, yes. and people come to the farm with their own bottles or they can okay. purchase a bottle at the farm and fill it up themselves and that's the way that because we are MPI registered, um, that's yep. the way that we um, are allowed to sell the milk. So um, you don't deliver the milk or ship the milk. Anyone wanting your milk needs to come to your place and get yep. the milk. Yep. Is that a condition of getting the registration? Uh, yes, more or less. Um, there are other options available you are allowed to deliver the milk as long as you're delivering it to the door of okay. the person buying it. Yep. Um, so we can't deliver it to a shop for them to sell it on to somebody okay. else. Um, and, I mean, for, for us, as in a business sense, it's a lot more work to travel around dropping yes. off milk to all these other places where, yeah. as at the moment, we can sell most, if not all, of the milk through our little shop. So it makes yeah. a lot more sense to try and get people to come to our shop to buy the milk rather than traipse it around the country. And how did you get into the raw milk business? Um, we were, my wife and I had just moved back from Australia and living with her parents um, in Welcome Bay. And I think you guys were buying the milk already, weren't you? Mm. They're buying so, the milk. Daryl, you were into raw milk already. Well, I come from um, a bit of a mixed background. So one of it was uh, part of my um, background was I was a dairy farmer back in the Waikato. And um, so when we moved over to the Bay of Plenty for other business reasons, uh, there was a raw milk dairy farm in existence down the road. And um, it came up for sale uh, about a year or so or so after we were here. And... Um, it was like, oh, that'd be real sad if it sold because we wouldn't be able to get raw milk, um, which because obviously as a dairy farmer, we had raw milk for 15 years, you mm. know, um, just out of the bat. Um, and um, when my daughter and Lauren came back, as he was saying, from Melbourne, um, it came an opportunity to go, well, look, if uh, is this something that you'd like to do? If uh, we um, purchased the, the property and um, and a trust and um, and worked it, uh, you, you could work it as the Good Farm Limited, and that's just, you know a decision that we made as as directors of the Good Farm uh, Limited together. Um, we would be able to continue this on as a service, not only for ourselves obviously, but also for the community. 
Good and so we um, we managed to pull all the strings necessary that made that whole that whole transaction happen. And we were fortunate at the time. Um, there wasn't, I mean, you could imagine it's a little block just on the outskirts, right on the outskirts of Tauranga. So there's um, limited use um, that other people would see, you know, for doing raw milk there. So, you, you know, for example, if you're a big-time dairy farmer, milking 16 cows is not really your thing. No. And if you're looking for a lifestyle block, you're not really looking to get up and milk cows and serve public all day either. No. So there was sort of a bit of a vacuum for who would be the sort of people that would really want to do this. And so we had a, we have a, a large community heart, I guess you put it that way. And um, so serving our community that way and working um, with the kids and the grandkids, you know, in a, um, a business um, and getting the raw milk ourselves was like, it was a win, win, win the whole way. Mm. So, uh, so know, how long have you been in the business now? Uh, four years now. Four years. And mm. are you loving it? Uh, yeah, it's, um, it's it's obviously a busy business because if you're just doing if you're a wholesale producer selling milk like as in Fonterra, um, you're not dealing with public. So we yeah. not only have to produce the product, but we also then have you know the public interaction. Yeah. And so you can imagine um, everybody that arrives on the farm thinks that they might be the only person that day, so they need all of the attention that you could give them. Um, so, you know, you can uh, – we have people travel from Auckland, for example, following the Country Calendar episode, um, all the way from Auckland just to buy milk, just to have a look at the farm, pick up some eggs, and then they wanted a private tour, and then they'd head home again. Um, so you can, you can imagine if you multiply that by a lot of people that you have a lot of demands on a busy little um, shop like we have. Um, well, let's cover that off while we're here. You've been sort of <clears throat> in the news. You've been on Country Calendar. You've been on the radio. You've made the big time with Reality Check Radio now. So, you know, be <laughs> yeah. ready be ready for a million Aucklanders to arrive. <laughs> um, did you go out seeking that or did it come to you? No. It, um, so that, that kind of snowballed from um, a local photographer. He was doing a book um called for the love of country and it's a coffee coffee table book um mm -hmm. celebrating new zealand farmers mm -hmm. and he lived just up the road and he approached me one morning and said look i'm doing this book would you mind if i take some photos and I, was, I had no problem with that and it didn't seem like we'd get some good photos out of it and maybe be on somebody's coffee table um and that's sort of as far as i sort of thought about it um, and then it probably would have been a good six or eight months later, um, the book was finally finished and started uh, the, the the promotion of the book started happening. And as uh, uh, a promotion for the book, the editors or producers, whoever it was, they chose a segment from the book to use it as part of that promotion. Oh wow! It just, yeah, yeah. It, it just so happened to be our story. And so that's where it sort of started to build and we started getting other people taking an interest in what we were doing. And I believe that's where the folks at Country Calendar sort of picked up on this little place that wasn't just doing one thing. They were trying to do a whole range of little bits and pieces. And so then they approached us and said, Good. you know, we'd love to do a story on you. Would that be all right? And it's sort of just built from there. Now, were you happy with what country? I'm apologize. I haven't seen it. And I went to your webpage and I saw the link and I never pushed it. And I apologize because I would like to see it. Were you happy with the country calendar finished product? 
Yeah, I mean, even even when we were talking with the the producer of of our show, um, the amount of content that she saw around, I think she said, you know, like you could do a mini series just on on what we're yeah. doing at the farm. So we they were trying to squeeze a lot of what we were doing mm-hmm. into. 21 minutes of, of yeah. content you know like um so i think from from those if you take into account those factors i think they did a really good job of of telling our story as good. a business as a whole good. um without it being angled on on any sort of particular um agenda or anything like that well uh, it must be good if people are driving from auckland for a bottle of milk yeah. yeah. Um, once you have a look at the show, you'll see that, you know, part of the makeup of the farm business is that we have a lot of school groups coming on, on to the farm. So there's a lot of yes. education. Yes. Um, there's, you know, part of that is like native tree planting and, and um, that sort of process. But there's also um, other groups that will come on, like the cruise ship tours coming into Tauranga this year and last year will come on and do do 30-minute tours from the boat. My um, goodness. So um, there could be hundreds of those booked by the looks of it this year coming onto the farm. So so there's, there's obviously the education, then the um, entertainment, I guess you might call it, but it is education for the cruise ship guys because they get to taste raw milk, they get to see the um, or taste the raw vegetables um, in our market garden. So there's the market garden side of it. Um, so, you know, there's a lot going on, which um, has, uh, there's a lot of stories in all of that. There is a lot of stories, and you're a very good businessman. Your son-in-law is lucky to have you. <laughs> well, you know, we also pay credit to the people that actually started the farm, yeah. you know, um, because they, they got the business going and um, got they built the cow shed and, and whatnot. And so, you know, there's credit there. Um, we're just really growing on it and expanding it. And um, we've got, you know, you know, more ideas, but just need time and resources, obviously, you know, to expand on those. Previously, you were a dairy farmer supplying Fonterra. What's the big difference going from supplying Fonterra? We know the customer side of it to presumably you had a lot of cows. And I think you said you've got 16 now. So you dropped down to 16 cows. What's the main difference or the differences between being a dairy farmer supplying Fonterra and being a small herd supplying the local community with raw milk? Well, obviously, the biggest difference is that um, when you supply um, the likes of a Fonterra, they're not obviously the only wholesaler in New Zealand, but you're selling your product as a wholesaler. So, so you've got no, you can't determine where it goes, you can't determine the price, um, you can't determine the regulations around it. You're just you're a supplier. You have to abide by those regulations, and you get the price that you get at the end of the day. Mm. Whereas when we're being a raw milk um, supplier to the community, we obviously get to determine. Um, you know, the price, we're obviously regulated through MPI, but we can do um, we can do more in our way, I suppose. And I guess if you take that right back, we're doing it in a lot more, um, I suppose, for us, we're doing it in a, in a more healthy sort of like whole way, I suppose, because we are right down to 16 cows. So it's not what you'd call a commercial uh, herd at all in any yes. stretch of the imagination. It's not industrialised. It's not an yes. industrialised system. It's... Um, so it's a cow by cow. You know your cows. You're you're yeah. working with each cow every day. It's it's a bit like if you went right back to you know when um, herds uh, were milked by hand. You know yeah. there was like you had about eight cows. And you knew the cows. You knew the milk. The milk was healthy, and so you could drink drink the milk, and you wouldn't get sick. It was the industrial revolution. 
which actually changed the wh why milk had to be pasteurised because the Industrial Revolution, you know, came about and um, they started feeding cows unhealthy byproducts, as in like from brewery, so, bar you know, the sort of barley byproducts, which in their own right are not unhealthy. But when you just feed cows just those sort of products and then in the Industrial Revolution, you ended up with sick cows, which ends up with sick milk. So if you, if yes, you sort I, of take I, it all the way back, I remember reading about how all this came about. Yeah. Because they used to, because they didn't have transportation, they had these big cities. Mm. They'd just walk the cows into town, tie them up. They'd poop everywhere, just tied up to a post. And they'd feed them rubbish, mm. never look after them, and pay urchins to sort of milk them. Yeah. Um, and the, there was no sanitary arrangements, whatever. And literally, Kids died from the bad milk. And Absolutely. Absolutely. The question, yeah. the question then was, as I understand it, whether to pasteurize the milk or whether to improve the sanitary conditions of the cows. That's right. And we yeah. went down the pasteurization route. Funnily enough, if my memory serves me right, it was the guy Macy from the Macy shop, he had retired with his money and um, he'd put all his money into getting this milk pasteurized. And um, we've ended up with pasteurized milk, um, which again, correct me, as I understand it, milk is the only product on earth that nature has delivered for the sole purpose of nourishing mammals. Like everything else, you're sort of stealing. Honey, you're stealing. Meat, you're stealing. Vegetables, you're sort of stealing. But milk is made by a mum to nourish her babies. And it's so cleverly designed that it's got everything that a, a growing infant needs. And it even has the bugs in it that help it digest it for our bodies. That's right. So when you start take, making changes to that whole product, then you start, you know, potentially causing problems the way that we digest it and digestive issues and whatnot. You know, when they first, um, uh, when they before just on that pasteurization process, the milk was so bad that they used to add um, whitener to it, eggs to it, and plaster Paris to it, and then molasses to sweeten it so that people would actually drink it. So you could see why people were dying of it. You know, it was, it was pretty... Pretty bad stuff. And if you look at it now, if you if you pasteurize milk now, you lose a whole lot of the goodness within it. Um, mm. um, and uh, you know, there's pretty there's there's a lot of documentation around that um, as to what you lose in the pasteurization process. Um, obviously, the milk, you know, if it's pasteurized, is is, um, is sanitized if you want to put it that way. You know, so it's not going to um, harm you. You may have some digestive issues, but what you're not getting is the goodness out of it. And so, and, then, and of course, uh, there's a whole lot of people that can't drink milk. They get a cook guts, but they can drink raw milk. That's right. Yeah, that's because the you know the enzymes are, are still available that break down. Um, oh the yes, mm. because yeah, so, so, enzymes so, denature in the heating process. Mm. Yeah. So when, when you when you pasteurize milk, um, what it does is it kills off all the bacteria and all the enzymes that. Um, good and bad, um, that uh, the enzymes especially that allow you to digest the milk mm -hmm. in your guts. And so what you end up having is a 
a, a product that is actually full of dead bacteria because they don't take that out when they pasteurize it. Mm. So all that bacteria, good and bad, that gets killed is still in the milk. Mm. And so we, we did a little experiment um, at the farm and we put some bought milk from the shop in a jar and in the hot water cupboard and some of our milk in a jar in the hot water cupboard and left it for three days. And when we took the lid off our milk, it was yogurty, and a little bit thick, and it basically did started to go to yogurt. But when we took the lid off the the bought milk, it was gone sort of an ashen grey colour, and it smelt rotten. And the reason behind that is because it is the the dead bacteria in that milk was just rotting, as opposed to you know a living bacteria that was changing it to to a um, a fermented product. Oh my goodness! Oh my goodness! Mm. But so imagine what that's doing in, in your body when you I know. consume it. I know. But, you know, to be fair, our bodies are pretty amazing. They do process pasteurized milk, you know. Yes. You, what you're lacking, you're just not getting the goodness out of it that you could. Yes. Um, you know, because over over the last 100 years, you know, we have processed, you know, uh, pasteurized milk as humans, mm. but we don't know what we're missing out on, do we, essentially? Well, our whole supply chain's had that problem, hasn't it, when you look at bread? and other products it's like it's been industrialized and we've thought of food as calories and nutrients rather than as something living um and that there's a lot more to it um and so we've just pounded out bread um pasteurized milk bang 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 and we wonder why we're having so many gut problems and even other uh stresses on kids and you're wondering how much of it relates to the food we don't know i got into this um through the western a price society and reading uh, mm. western a price's book which i found amazing now yeah. my mother god rest her soul was absolutely mortified when i was giving our babies and our infants and our toddlers and our children raw milk and the crazy thing about that is I can remember growing up on a on a little you know farm like yours with half a dozen cows and drink getting the cream out of the can and loving it as a kid. But what you realize, we've had a hundred years of demonization of raw milk. So there were advertisements in the newspapers, don't drink raw milk, pasteurize it, yada, mm. yada, yada, going back 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. Plunkett were absolutely fervent not to give your kids raw milk. They'd get tuberculosis or something and die. And my mother was convinced I was next to killing my children by giving them raw milk. And I'm quite surprised that Country Calendar turned up non-skeptical hmm. well i guess there's there's um you know really good regulations and it takes it back to that pasteurization we do this sterilization if you like with the plant as opposed to doing it to the product yes. so we make sure the plant and the animal the teats and everything are really clean so the actual products are sterilized by the planters yes. you know so there's good regulations around that and so um, that makes it uneconomical because of the tightness of those regulations for you know some operators. We've um, we've managed to I guess 
put um, a collection of uh, products together that make it um, like a destination. So essentially, you know, we want to sell whole foods, not only the whole food in terms of the raw milk, but the whole foods in terms of the market garden. So we have spray-free market garden. So we have a whole process there where people come out just for our, our again, I guess, healthy whole foods. So they're not they're not sprayed. We don't um, till the soil. Um, you know, we um, have a whole lot of sort of procedures which sort of bring the best, hopefully, the best out, the best mineral sort of content within our product for the consumer. And then we sell eggs and other bits and pieces like fruit and whatnot. And so, um, you know, we've managed to make the process actually work, I suppose, you know, in terms of a business. And I think that, you know, if um, more people could work on whole healthy foods, you know, as a an entire business um, or as an, an entire operation, then, you know, we as um, the community and consumers would be a whole lot healthier and better off um, as well. But looking at it at the moment as a businessman, would just having cows, just producing raw milk, would you get a sufficient return to justify the effort required? I I think, yes, we could continue. Yes, we could. Wow. Um, but um, we know that, you know, for people to travel, because they have to come to the farm, remember, we don't, you know, it's not yeah. in there, it's not, it's not convenient for them. So because they've got to go out of their way and there's an inconvenience factor, then we need to make it um, more worthwhile for people to, you know, mm. To make the trip, yeah. And they come from far and wide. Um, we have people, you know, we're based in Tauranga, but we have people um, every week from Rotorua um, and and distances as far as that in the circle around us because we're the only only producer in the Bay of Plenty. There are other producers in the Waikato, but um, um, so people really want that whole food and um, they'll travel and they'll make that effort. So we just try and make it obviously worthwhile for them or more worthwhile. Now, how tough was it or did you inherit the license or how tough is it to keep the license to sell raw milk because my supplier did everything to comply produced beautiful milk um and got prosecuted when for legal reasons when his lawyer and mpi had all signed off on everything sort of five years later or something they came along and did him over because my understanding was MPI didn't look favorable, favorably upon raw milk suppliers. So how tough has that been and how reasonable has it been? Um, well, I mean, like, I, I don't know about your your instance, but um, we, we, did, we took over the um, existing regulation that the previous owner had. Um, and in the early days when we were still figuring it all out and getting used to the the whole thing it, it was quite tough and we had a few um uh sort of uh, bacterial scares in the milk where something yeah. had come up in the testing so we have to test our milk um by regulation every 10 days for certain things yeah um and so we did in the early days we did have um a, a higher bacteria level than was acceptable um but not so bad that we had to you know um stop producing but we did have to stop selling the milk i think it ended up being for about 10 days until we could prove that there was um no f continuing issue 
Um, so it, it was tough in the early days. We've we've managed to get to a point where um, we haven't had those issues for a while. Touchwood, um, but the and have you a relationship with the MPI people that are checking on you? Yeah, yeah, to a degree. Like, I mean, um, they uh, we we get audited every two years. MPI will come out and go through sort of all of our paperwork. We've got I've got a book of paperwork about 15 centimeters thick that I have to fill out every every day every week every month I've got different things that I have to fill out so we'll go through that um and while they're not I don't think they are trying to close us down but they're definitely very very thorough because raw milk and bacteria just scares MPI yeah. you know you, yeah. you say bacteria then all their little alarm bells go off and um whether it's good or bad you know like it's it's just one of those things that um, they want it sanitized and sterilized and pasteurized and yeah. homogenized I, and, I mean at the, the end of the day what it, what it appears to be is that you know they just don't want to be liable for anything i mean who well, wants to be liable for anyone getting sick they've got a big industry to protect too haven't they the yeah. whole dairy industry um why is it that i would imagine with 16 cows you could quite happily have regular customers who would take your entire production and just come each week or twice a week and pick up their milk for the coming days and leave you in peace. And that, because I mean, that's how I've always done my raw milk. It wasn't something um, advertised or people visiting the farm, although you could. It was just a process by um, the same customers week in and week out. And yet you've got people coming in literally, you know, for the look uh, around the farm and a one-off. Um, is that a conscious decision that you've made? I don't think so. I think I think it's just actually what's um, developed and what's grown, you know, and obviously because of the promotion, it, it opens the doors for more people to be, open to the idea of raw milk. And so we're not against that at all, you know, because it's obviously opening the eyes and ears and minds of people, you know, to, to you could grow the market, right? food solution. Yeah, totally. So we're totally not opposed to that at all. Um, I guess what we found is that um, because it's, it's not a convenient product, you've got to drive to the farm to get it. You know, we have a, a huge range of customers, I guess, and some of them might be more regular than others. Some okay. might just go, well, it's just not regular. It's just not convenient for me this week, so they don't come. So having, you know, a large amount of customers that come for different reasons, some of them come, um, obviously, you know, primarily for the likes of the, uh, our lettuce. We have a famous lettuce mix, um, or, um, which Lauren puts together. So, um, you know, people travel far and wide for that. And so, yeah, we have a large range of customers. There's, there's no doubt about it. And, um, you know, interesting, a lot of them want to talk. They want to discuss um, the, you know, obviously the health benefits and food and whatnot, but also the current government regulations, you know, around a whole lot of issues. And so they just actually want to talk um, about this. And, and I think you, one, of the, one of the big things um, that we've sort of come to understand, I suppose, over the last four years is had the importance of people knowing where their food comes from and who's producing it you know like with all the milk that um gets bought in the shop it comes from all over the country from so many different farms it gets standardized and you get a product that's the same um but you've got no idea about the people that produce it how it's produced 
um, where it's come from, all of that sort of stuff. So when people come to our farm, they can see most of the time, they can see, you know, those are the cows and those are the cows that the milk's come from. It's just those ones there. This is the land that they've grazed. And if they meet me, then they, they've met the person that's actually milked those cows that morning and can tell them what's been going on. Or, you know, they can see the ground in the, in the vegetable garden where their veggies are coming from. Mm. Um, so it adds another layer of um, community and, and sense of um, provenance, I guess, from of, of where food is going and how it's produced. And you can t- start to explain to people, you know, like in winter, it's harder to make milk. It's harder to make vegetables grow. In summer, you get a lot uh, easier time and, and you know, you, you might have a bit more milk going around or, or whatever it is. Um, so you, you can start to educate people because with this, there's a real breakdown in our food system where people, they don't even know what food grows seasonally anymore because you can get tomatoes year round. You can get strawberries in the middle of winter. You know, there's, there's a breakdown in um, seasonal you get upset, eating. You get upset if you go into the supermarket and there aren't strawberries. Exactly. You know, like, and like that, there's, there's a real um, disconnection of, of, of healthy food production. And yeah, you can, yeah, you can grow stuff. You can grow stuff all year round and you can grow stuff in, um, in dead dirt as long as you put the right chemicals in there to make stuff grow. But it doesn't mean that it's healthy, you know. Um, Lauren, what were you doing before you were at dairy farming? Um, I spent about 12 years in kitchens and, New Zealand and Australia. So I was a chef for, um, yeah, about 12 years. So you know about good food? Yeah, but I suppose I do. I do. I know about good tasting food. Mm. Um, and it, it's it's certainly opened my eyes a bit more going down this path about the nutrition, I suppose, of good food as opposed mm. to just the good flavours. But mm. they kind of go hand in hand. Mm. Um, you know, if, if something has, a a really good flavor about it, then there's something else that's in it rather than just the base chemicals that make it grow. You know, like if you get something that's, um, a full bodied, full tasting carrot, it's going to be a lot more nutritious for you than something that tastes like water and has yeah. had nothing put into it, but. You know, and what about that. the lifestyle? I mean, you now have a completely different lifestyle. How, how, what were the key aspects of the lifestyle change for you from being a chef, presumably in a city, to being gumboots on and getting up and milking cows in the morning? Yeah. I mean, it's probably like the polar opposite. Yeah. Um, you know, I came from 100 hours a week um, working inside to and and not seeing my wife and then one-year-old boy to um now i'm working well i probably still work about arguably 40 50 60 hours depending on what's going on um but i'm home you know i'm, I'm there for nearly every single meal time instead of missing every single one i see the family all the time and i work outside in the in the sunshine and in the wind and the rain and the being it's, a chef must be extremely stressful. Yeah, it can be. But you kind of, I mean, yes, it is. <laughs> um, but you, you, you survive on adrenaline, I suppose. And yes. so it took, a, it took a couple of years for me to sort of 
get that yeah get that out of your system that and you know i might go out for for a bite to eat in a restaurant and i'll still pick up on that adrenaline that you can feel just in the environment and you miss it a little bit but no i wouldn't go back to cooking in a restaurant well you've had a big change too because a lot of guys like leaving home and going to work right because it gives them an outlet and they can do their manly thing but also you're living with your in-laws and not only sort of <laughs> living beside them, you're working with them. Yeah. Um, obviously that's quite tough. Um, it's actually been not as tough as somebody, as you would expect. I've okay. got to be careful here because you're sitting right beside me. I know. Me. That's why I'm teasing <laughs> you. No, I mean, we, we couldn't, we couldn't have done near as much as what has been achieved without, no, I was teasing um, Darren and Larissa being here. Yeah, um, tell me this. Um, you took over an existing business, which um, anyone knows that's attempted this is a big difference from starting from scratch. And you've had your you've had Daryl with you, who's been a dairy farmer. Could you conceive now of starting out on your own? Ground zero, being a chef, saying I'm going to be a dairy farmer with 16 cows and pulling it off, or would it just be too tough? I mean, I know it would be tougher. I'm asking on behalf of listeners who are saying, oh, I wonder if I could do that. Could you pull it off, or do you just not have the knowledge? Uh, oh, you'd have to have, I think, the, the all your ducks line up in a row. So the only reason... The reasons that it worked was Daryl's knowledge because mm. I've relied on that um, mm. for animal husbandry and mm. um, milking skills and and even just general farming skills. Like there's just so much knowledge uh, based knowledge to to sort of um, pull on like mechanics. I'm not a mechanic. I'm a chef. You know mm. that thing takes oil. Really? Does it? Mm. Oh, okay. Um, you know there's mm. there's those sorts of things that. I'd, I'd, I would I would have sunk. Um, so it d- depend on their base knowledge and then their support, their their family support or community support as to whether you could find those um, that experience that you're lacking in the people around you that might be able to pull in. And like when you start something or when you um, go down that pathway, if if you just do it just by yourself, it's going to be real real tough. But if you start talking to your community, um, you'll find the answers. People will come and help, um, and that's something that we've I've found here when I've had other issues in and around the farm, whether it be I'm needing a cow or I've got this problem with a cow or um, something like that. I'll talk to to the local community, the local farmers, and and people are really really generous with their time um, and and help. But yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I think you know, a business like this, you you need to have that community support. But you know, if you obviously going into farming, you need to have some experience as well because you know animals require our care. So you can't just go in there and think that you know you you know how to deal with them without actually having some experience. So you couldn't do raw milk unless you, I think, coming from some form of dairy farming background. Um, and then um, uh, again, I think that community support is a big part of it um, as well. On top of it. Do you have to call a vet? Yeah. Yeah. So that's a tricky tricky thing, right? Because you've got to know, 
Mabel's sick. I'll need help. Whereas I wouldn't know that Mabel was sick or I wouldn't know whether how sick she is. And we, my point, I guess, is, is that we devalue that experience everywhere we look. Yeah. Yeah. We don't value, we don't, you get it, you decide to cook some nice meal and you get the recipe and it's, incredibly hard and you make a hash of it and the chef just whips it up because they've done it day in and day out. You look at a dairy farmer and the dairy farmer can fix a motor, uh, look across at a cow, uh, know that needs help. They can look across the pasture, know that it's lacking something. All of that stuff is just second nature to them, but to everyone else, it's not. Well, it's, it's one of those funny things. Before we started milking cows here. I'd drive through the countryside and you'd look at everything, you'd look at it along, and you might think, oh, you know, those are nice autumn colours or um, or there's a lot of cows in that paddock or something like that. Now when I go driving through the country, I'm looking at the grass going, oh, they've got grass. I get yeah. grass envy, you know, yeah. or or I'll, the opposite. I might be like, oh, they've got no grass or, wow, those cows haven't got anything to eat. Like, what's going on there? And and so your, your perceptions do change based on your experience and, and what you're into, I suppose, you know, like if you're an accountant or a financier or something, you know, that's, that's, that's your expertise your and you can see the numbers off at a glance. Well, so one it's, thing it's, I've got to tell you, Dale, you'll laugh at this. I built a farm fence and I'd always wanted to build a farm fence. I don't know why. It just, I always looked at farm fences and thought they were amazing. Mm-hmm. properly tensed and all the rest of it. And I had an opportunity. I wanted to build a nursery. And I thought, I'm going to actually build this farm fence properly. And I literally spent hours of research <laughs> learning how to build a fence. And, uh, and Gold Pine have great videos and YouTube. And I got it all worked out. And um, there were two aspects to it. One is it was a lot harder work than I had ever anticipated, you know, doing it by hand. And second of it, I made just about every mistake uh, known to mankind to build a fence. But oh boy, do I love my fence! And when <laughs> I see a fe- when I see a fence now, because you have no idea what's under the ground holding those fences, you know, up and and how the how the actual physics of a fence that you you'll you'll appreciate this. When I put the dead man in for the corner post, they said to notch it. And I thought, oh, no, bugger, I haven't got time to notch it. I'll just sort of sit it in there. Because I imagined that the forces were pushing back, and so I never notched it. And when I came along to tighten it, the post just popped up. <laughs> and and, and um, you think, ah, when they say notch it, there's a reason that you notch it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I had to take the fence down and put it back up. But it was just a simple thing that a dairy farmer or a farmer just knows growing up on a farm it's just second nature and they couldn't even explain it to you you know because it's sort of obvious and here's me blundering around trying to build a simple fence um i want to do a bigger one now because i've you know figured it out and i enjoyed it immensely but just that's just one part of a farmer's part day right yeah yeah i mean i've always I'm always amazed when you go to the field days, you see those those young guys making those fences at speed. Yes. Um, it's just amazing. And I was, uh, you know, I look at them thinking, wow, wouldn't it be amazing to have a fence made that fast? Yeah. And um, that good. <laughs> and that's what I, I feel in today's world, we're sort of run by kids on computers. 
who don't actually understand where the foods come from, where um, things are made, um, what goes into it, and then they have no respect for the people that are doing it, mm. if you know what I mean. Um, okay. When I, I just quickly had to tell you an anecdote. When I was an MP, I had a guy come to see me, a student, and he wanted to see me and tell me why I was wrong about the free market and free enterprise and why we really need to live in communism. And uh, he came across, and I said, well, let's go and get a bite to eat. And um, so I bought him lunch, and we went into the 247 Newmarket, which had this amazing food hall, which still amazed me because we didn't have those when we were kids. You get Indian or curry or sushi, and it's all this amazing food for lunch. And we're sitting there, and I said, what would you like for lunch? Oh, yums and ahs, and ums and ahs, and ums and ahs. And then goes across and gets a Thai green curry and sits down. I say, oh, it's really good. And he says, now, I want to explain to you why the market doesn't work. (laughs) (laughs) And you're sort of sitting there, and you think, what do you think you'd be eating if you were in East Germany circa 1980? Mm. They have Mm. no idea of where food comes from or the process that makes it. And, you know, we have lost that with the industrialization of milk because literally two generations ago, people were living in towns where they'd take a can and go to the farmer and buy some milk and some eggs. Mm-hmm. It just, and, and now that's inconceivable and a tourist thing to be doing. Yeah, well, that is interesting. Now, we have cruise ships, you know, like the tours, like I mentioned, um, and people are just amazed, you know, one, to taste raw milk, like you can actually do that, um, and two, to actually go and pick a tomato off a plant or, di- or pull a carrot up and eat it on the spot, as it were. That They just can't believe it. Now, it's a rude thing to ask. Tell me off if it is. Um, how do you profit from a tourist trip visit do you pay an entrance fee or how does that work yeah they they pay a, they pay a fee per person um that's an arrangement with the tour group that come brings the tours to the farm i see so it's a tour company operating probably out of tauranga yes they pick up they pick up tourists from the ship and show them around tauranga and part of the trip is a visit to your place to the good farm that's the to way. the good yeah. farm that's the one. <laughs> and how many do you get at a time? Uh, well, with that, that depends on how the uh, how many the the tour operators um, pick up. Um, we're, we're we're linked up with two different um, tour groups or tour operators, um, and one of them would just be one tour, potentially one tour a day over the season. Um, and it could be from anywhere from I think it's twelve to sixty people on the on the tour. It just depends who books in. Um, and then the other tour group um, is a little bit less limited. Um, we did a couple of them at the end of last year. But that um, could grow too, right? Because a lot oh, of yeah. tourists come through Tauranga. And tell me, have you got plans to? You obviously got plans that you don't need to share with me about expanding what you're doing now. Have you got plans to? We're happy, we're happy to spend those because they're pretty. Oh, okay. Excited. Yeah. Tell us. Like, like this guy here is a, <laughs> a, a top chef from Melbourne. You got to remember. Yeah. 
And so, um, you know, I have plans to build an outdoor kitchen and people can do uh, raw food cooking class tours, if you like, in the evening. Fantastic. Um, they, yeah, with the top chef from Melbourne. So, you know, we can we can advertise it that way. So it'll, it'll yeah. pull in some... Uh, <laughs> some Man, you're a good businessman. See, I was just looking at him at a nuisance son-in-law. But you're looking at your son-in-law's dollars into the business. You see, that's a, that's a I, I wouldn't quite put it that way, but I, I just say <laughs> using his passion and his skill. Yes. Um, and would you have a restaurant as well that you'd eat at as well as a demonstration? No, I don't think so. I think well, you wouldn't call it a restaurant because it would be an outdoor experience. So it would go okay. through the garden and then it would be an outdoor cook. It would be a small group. Imagine 10, 15 people yes. you know, doing a, a the full course, which might take two or three hours and, and sort of like, you know, twilight evening hours in summer. Um, so, yeah, it, it would be an outdoor eating experience, which, which would all be part of it. Yeah, And you wouldn't be – you'd be doing back 120 hours and not seeing your kids again. No, no, my kids, my kids would be probably running around serving the tables by then. Yeah. And <laughs> hey, what else have you got planned, Andrew? Um, I mean, there's oh, Daryl, oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, no, that's right. We're expanding on the, you know, the tours like the the community groups, like the schools and whatnot. And so part of that might be um, they've done a lot, quite a lot of planting of native uh, plants. So we'd like possibly to get into like a bit of a native tour. Uh, like a native walk as part of a, an experience for the kids where they walk through native sections and learn about different things up through to sort of like an old orchard, which we call the ancient orchards. They can learn about old fruits, you know, the heritage mm-hmm. fruits and whatnot. And so where the chooks and sheeps are. So they get sort of a native animal experience. Um, so um, there's that idea. And then at the moment we're building a few, you'll see on country calendar, we're building a new shop. Um, and um, so we'd like to uh, part of that will be to serve coffee um, out of a window and create a playground for mums and kids to come out um, as a bit of a destination as well. Um, so um, it won't be a cafe as such, it'll just be a, a coffee window as part of our retail outlet. Um, so people will be able to get raw milk coffee, I guess. Well, and what about expanding elsewhere in the country? No, I don't think so. I, like, <laughs> I think you'd, you'd lose you'd lose your um, uniqueness and your your what makes us special. Um, I was just being a bit selfish because I can't readily access raw milk. Well, and well, well, for those that are not in this area, um, you know, I was just in touch with a, um, a, per, a lady who's starting up in Silverdale, and not too different distance future. So what I said to her I said, "Well, look, I'll help where yes. I can." So it's about helping one another and, and building a community of raw milk suppliers so that different mm. people, because we, we only just got an email yesterday from someone in Wellington saying, I know it's probably out of the question, but is there any way I can get raw milk from you? <laughs> so, yeah, so no, well, I feel you know, the same. And yeah. it must be wonderful for your grandkids, Daryl. Oh, absolutely. Grandkids um, running you know, around the farm. Totally. I, I was an Auckland banker um, prior to farming, and um, I was working in Queen Street, and I wanted to bring the kids up, my children up in the rural uh, in a rural environment, so I went. I went farming just for that reason, just to bring the kids up rurally. And so now to see the grandkids um, having that same opportunity to live in a rural environment, you know, um, and and grow up that way is pretty cool. I don't know if you want to comment on this because you don't want to upset the industry, but you can be delicate. You can pre-formulate an answer. Do you find it a little odd and disturbing that we take this? beautiful, wonderful product, milk, that is a living, perfect, nature's best food ever, and 
treat it industrially, kill it, suck all the water out, and end up with a bit of powder, which we export. It just doesn't add up to me. No. But, I mean, I guess I just wouldn't um, only pick on, if you like, if you looked at it that way, you just don't pick on the dairy industry because um, they are only one of the food sources within the industrialised nations that destroy food. You know, um, if you look at um, large uh, vegetable-grown processes, they grow vegetables in dead dirt, feeding them um, Mm -hmm. NPK. Yes. And that's how the vegetables grow. So that's no different, you know. Like, um, so I don't. I think you know. You probably need to. Um, it's the whole it and, the whole industrialized farming yeah. approach of yeah. really mass produced food. 50, yeah. 60 years. Yeah, but again, if you looked at the individual farmers, Rodney, you know they're wonderful people. That they, they are farming because yes. they love no, I get farming. That. They love their cows. They love their milk. So they're great. They're doing a fantastic job and they need to continue doing what they're doing. It's actually those that are above them wanting to industrialise the whole process and control it all, you know. Um, From Queen Street, where you were. Pretty much. (laughs) Tell me, um, (laughs) it is, but I would imagine your soil is, would your soil be the same as an ordinary dairy farmer's soil who's got a lot of cows and is having to produce a lot of milk to be economic, whereas you've got well, 16 cows and you can rest the soil and move it around, you've got a, a mixture of crops. Does, do you notice a difference in your soil? Well, I mean, one of the differences, you know, there are a lot of dairy farmers that will be doing what we do on our dairy farm as well. Like we don't use any processed uh, fertilisers. Okay. So, there's, so, so the only fertilizer we use is natural rock. Um, so, um, there's a lot of dairy farmers in that in that same. Um, not all, obviously, you know, but a, a large percentage. That Tell me the find. logic of that quickly. Natural um, fertilizer. Well, obviously, if, if you if you're using as, um, um, non non natural rocks, they are always processed through acid, essentially. So you're you're breaking down what is a natural nutrient. You know, and you're producing something else, like a phos, you know, like the the phosphate you might put on, or, or the superphosphate. So, so you can you know, the plants then can can grow, like get a turbo boost to grow, but you're not feeding your soil. So everything we do is about feeding the soil, so the soil can produce a more healthy plant. So the healthy plant can be eaten by obviously by the animal and produce a more healthy product. And so, yep, you could grow more grass than we grow if you actually turbocharge it, but we're in it for the long haul wanting to improve our soil. Mm-hmm. So everything that we do, both in the market garden and on the farm, is about soil biology, mm-hmm. essentially. And it's all a work in progress. It's all, uh, I mean, when, you try, when you're trying to change soil um, naturally, it takes a long time. Mm-hmm. So part of that is the plant species. You no, know, we, we plant multi-species plants so that we can have deep rooting plants and you know shallow rooting plants and plants that have different functions and different nutrient values and whatnot. But it, you know, to be fair, it hasn't been easy here because we are on a little hilly block. Um, we have a where our prominent species is kaiku, um, which is a you know brought this is a plant that was brought into New Zealand, so it's like an invasive species as, as it were. But it's now pretty much right through Northland and you know large chunks of the Bay of Plenty and further and you know some other areas. So you know we have our own issues to deal with, but you know there's good and bad and species like that because it does very well over summer, but you know we we struggle a lot over winter because it doesn't grow in winter. Um, whereas if you go to the Waikato, you'll see the ryegrass growing really well in winter. 
Mm. Um, you know, so th- there's a whole combination of stuff, but a lot of dairy farmers or a number of dairy farmers is probably a fair way of saying it, Rodney. They're wanting to do that same process as well. Right. So you could you could be in a commercial herd, if you want to call it that, serving a, a, a as a wholesaler, but still actually looking after your soils. Mm. Well, what a wonderful thing you're doing. And I mean, it must be an exciting life. You've got the grandkids, you've got three generations, um, you've got the community, you've got your customers uh, to chat to. But more particularly, it's not a routine job because you're constantly facing these challenges of um, cows, grass, soil that you're learning about the whole time. It's like an education every day. Yeah, and that's that's pretty much the farming life. If you talk to most farmers, that you know, uh, we live in a, in a an environment which is continually changing. So we're you know we're trying to change and, and adapt, and you know um, we've had a wet winter and a wet summer last summer, which is wet summer was wonderful for growth, but you know who knows this summer could be a dry summer. So you're yeah. you're forever learning, adapting, changing. But you know our customers on on the other hand, they turn up and expect this, you know a bottle of milk to be well yeah the dispenser to be available to dispense a bottle of milk for them. Yeah. Um, so you know one of our jobs is to make sure that we can keep consistency here. So you know that's something we work hard at to try and keep a consistent you know volume and product and 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 whatnot. And then you know grow like some of the things we talked about, grow the destination so that people really love mm. coming to the the good farm. And part of that is about promoting farming. You know, promoting mm. uh, whole foods, healthy foods, raw foods, um, and farming in general. Have you thought of cheese? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, I've, I've mucked around with a bit of cheese um, just for the house. Um, and it, it can make, I mean, I, I, I've made fresh cheese, so mozzarella, mozzarella ricotta, uh, feta, halloumi, um, paneer. At all, and it makes fantastic cheese. Oh yeah! Um, and we've we've talked about putting a little cheese facility in at the farm as well um, to utilise the milk that may be excess. Um, so we're we're only allowed to sell our raw milk for thirty hours. Um, so anything that isn't sold within thirty hours, I see, needs to yeah. be um, discarded. Yes. Um, essentially. Um, so we we feed our calves. We leave um, raise all our calves as um, beef calves. Yeah. So they're a beef dairy cross. I'll raise them, hand raise them to about twelve weeks, and then I try and find lifestylers that want a little beefy on their um, on their block. You know, a friendly animal that'll come when you kind of call out to it. Um, and so that's where our excess milk goes at the moment. But we've talked about. Um, yeah, bringing in a, a, a cheese facility to utilise that. Um, however, um, you know, especially at the moment, we're we're pretty much selling nearly all of the milk as and it is. Busy. And yeah, and you look so, at the day and you say, "Where am I going to fit my cheese making in?" Yeah. Well, you're <laughs> yeah. on Real Talk with Rodney Hyde, Rally Check Radio. I promise you, if you're anywhere near the Bay of Plenty, take a trip over to the Good Farm. Uh, you'll meet a wonderful family. But you, if you've never drinking raw milk, you're in for something truly wonderful because you can't believe that what we buy in the supermarket is milk after you've tasted raw milk. You can actually taste the sunshine and the goodness. And man, oh man, I just miss my, miss my raw milk. It's fabulous talking to you, Lauren and Daryl. Uh, it's been wonderful. 
we wish you every success. Uh, maybe we'll come back in six months or a year if you're up for it, and we'll talk about progress. I just think what you're doing is fabulous in a family way, in a community way, in a food production way, and that you are leading uh, and providing an, ex an exemplar for what a lot of people could be doing um, for the good of us all. So thank you for that. Thank you so very much for taking the time to come on. All right. Thank you, Rodney. Pleasure. And if you go to the Good Farm listeners, uh, the webpage, you'll see about the farm, you'll see about the business, and you'll be able to click on and watch the country calendar show. And um, it doesn't quite have the reach that we have, uh, but you get pictures. So uh, that's the advantage of it. You're on Real Talk with Rodney Hyde, Reality Check Radio. Send us a text, 2057. Uh, email me, inbox at realitycheck.radio. If you want to pass a note on to Lauren and Daryl, uh, send it through me and they will get it. Thank you for listening. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057. That's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Oh, and we had a lot of fun, a lot of feedback with Ashley Church. Uh, he was always in the media as the property guy, various roles, but he's been a businessman, an investor, dabbled in politics, stood for the National Party when he was just out of short pants and on the council when he was still in short pants. And we discussed his Christian values and the impact of Christian values on society and on politics and the devastating result that he and I perceive in our society as we have lost our faith and having lost our faith, lost our values and become rudderless and directionless and people being all about themselves. But I wanted to explore more with Ashley, particularly given the feedback, and talk about what Christianity has meant to him personally as an individual rather than the big picture stuff. Good morning, Ashley. Good morning again, Rodney. Nice to talk to you again. Well, I've been thinking about our talk a lot, so it's lovely to have you back, and thank you for coming back because in some ways this is quite a hard topic. It is. Why do you think it's hard? Oh, it's hard because uh, the concept of Christianity, in fact, two words that that underpin the entirety of Christianity um, are, are what I call power words, and they are so powerful that they cause a visceral, visceral reaction in people either for or against. Um, and those two words are the words Jesus Christ. And so when you say those words to people, uh, they immediately have a response to them. And that's, that response is either very positive because, you know, they're part of the club um, or they're, they're, they're quite strongly negative. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that. I think partly they're strongly negative because there's a lot of baggage with Christianity that goes back a long way 
and people's bad experiences with things that they perceive as being Christian. But I think also, and, and I, I suspect we'll probably talk about this as, as, as we carry on with this conversation, but there's also what I call a, a spiritual dimension to it, which is there's a there's an aspect of it which people don't want to hear because it challenges their whole concept of, of what they're doing and how, they, how they're how they leading their lives. Um, and it's, it's really interesting because uh, there will be people listening to the show now who will immediately have that reaction. What, what's particularly mm. interesting about that, by the way, is that those words actually aren't the real name of the person that we refer to um, uh, as as Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus Christ is actually a a, a Greek term. Um, uh, the original the original name of of that person from the Hebrew um, was Yeshua, which is mm. which is interesting. And, and if and if you take that name Yeshua. And you transliterate it into the English language in the 21st century. It's actually not Jesus; it's Joshua. So, yeah, so, funny. but, but, but a trivia there. Um, and Christ, Christ. So we should start a new religion called Joshua. Well, a, a lot of people actually do. A lot of Christians now actually do refer to Christ as, as Yeshua. It's quite common now. It has been Yeshua. for a long time. Um, and the name Christ is so the the, the name Christ. There's, uh, you will have heard the term Messiah. Messiah is a Hebrew term, or it's actually the correct Hebrew term is Mashiach, and it means anointed. And Christ is simply the Greek equivalent of that word. It means the same thing. It means anointed. So the real name of that character is actually not uh, Jesus Christ. It's Yeshua ben Yusuf, which just means it's the ben Yusuf, meaning it's son of Joseph. Um, but putting all that aside, though, that word Jesus Christ has such a strong and powerful impact on people that, as I say, people listening to this will have have one reaction or the other uh, to those Do two words. I think popular culture and the media have done their utmost to belittle people who have a faith in Jesus Christ and are Christians and also to show the very worst of churches and sort of painted Christianity along with colonialism as this terrible thing that's devastated the world, which, of course, is the obverse of reality. I do, although I don't. Uh, I don't necessarily think that the the perception that I just talked about before, as a, as a result of that, in fact, I think it's the other way around. I think that those are reactions to the fact that society's been moving away from this whole concept of Christianity for a long time, um, and and as that's gathered steam, as as that's sort of gone faster and faster. Um, the apparatus of society, including the media, has become part and parcel of that whole process of doing everything that it can to deny it. But part of the reason for that, this is where it gets really interesting, part of the reason for that, I think, is because um, Christianity, whether you, whether you like it or not, actually challenges us. It challenges us in respect of uh, the values and the claims that it makes relative to our own lifestyle. So if we're doing things that are in keeping with Christianity, we tend to be you know, we tend to go along with that. We're happy with it. We understand it. But if we're doing things that aren't in concert with Christianity, that aren't in keeping with Christian values, then we've really only got two choices. We can either change what we're doing, or we can find ways to to ridicule and 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 decry that faith. And that's happening increasingly. That's been happening for. You know, I think you and I talked last time about this decline going back to the fifties. Um, that's been happening for the last sixty or seventy years. We we don't like the the challenge that Christianity puts in our face and our reaction to that is to try and do things to try and to, to try and diminish it to, and, and to try and discredit it so that we actually don't have to deal with the consequences of our own actions. Well, it's like an alcoholic refusing yeah. to admit they're an alcoholic. Really good example. 
really, Christianity really puts these constraints and disciplines on your behavior and says that just being me, 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 and this is fun, fun, fun uh, is wrong. Yes, but there is a but to that. Uh, that presupposes that Christianity is all about sort of harsh restraints and constraints and things on the way that you actually live. It's actually not all that harsh. It's actually, in, in fact, as we progress in this conversation, hopefully I'll get to talk a bit more about my own experience with it. But but if you if you live it the way that it's intended to be lived, it's actually a pretty easy lifestyle, and it's not uh, a constraining and diminishing lifestyle. It's actually it, it's a lot of fun. It's it's um, it's it's just different to the values of a society that basically says that everything should be centered on your own ego and your own need to 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 for pleasure and and you know to do things that are going to make you feel better about yourself. Um, but you know, one of the for, for, for me, there was there was almost two aspects or two 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 stages to to my faith, and I think you and I talked about this last time. The first stage of my faith was when I was in my late teens, and it was very much an intellectual thing, and it was around. Um, it actually started with me wanting to discredit Christianity because I just thought it was nonsense, and so when I studied it, it actually found. But it wasn't nonsense. It was it, it stood up on every criteria that I could throw against it. And so by my late teens, intellectually, I understood it. And I could argue it against anybody. I could go into any debate, still can actually, could go into any debate and could argue in favor of Christianity and would win that debate, hands down. Um, but I didn't live it at all. And and How interesting. interesting. So it was a head thing. It was completely a head thing. It was totally a head thing. To and, the, and you could disassociate your own behavior. Yes, to my shame. Because <laughs> that was because you were young and randy or something. That was completely all of those things. And I had a massive ego. And I and while I understood it intellectually, my ego was such that I didn't think that I actually had to live it. I thought that as long as I understood it and I sort of met the, the, the primary criteria of what it meant to be a Christian, that I could just get on and continue to do the things that I did. And, you know. So you, you were a Christian in your yep. faith. But, but you were chasing girls and all of that. All of that. Yeah. What else? Oh, in terms Rats. of my, own, my 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 biggest issue has always been pride and ego. So so yeah, I mean, I've they're had, the two they're two sins, right? They are, well, yes, they are. Yeah, or, or 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 two sides of the same sin. So absolutely, I mean, in terms of relationships, yep. I mean, I've been married three times. I've got uh, kids to different parents. You know, all sorts of things that I'm not particularly proud of. Um. And you know that went on until my mid thirties, um, and uh, but 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 the bigger thing for me was that I always knew better than everybody else, and so I had this intellectual understanding of Christianity. And so I even your understanding of Christ was better than anyone else's too. Well, yes, <laughs> <laughs> you're an arrogant, you're a prideful Christian. I was. I wasn't alone, to be fair. But but what uh, what made that particularly interesting is that I would go and to the extent that I would attend churches, which which has always been a hit and miss thing for me for most of my life. Um, I didn't particularly like being with Christians. I, I found it very saccharine, um, and and the, you know the, it, it was almost over performative in the sense that the whole church thing was what I used to refer to as God in a box, which meant that people would go along to a service in the morning or the evening waiting for God to perform for them as if they could sort of bring him out of a box as if he was a, a showman, um, which I always found quite difficult. But I was part of that problem because I, you know, rather than trying to integrate with these people, I was better than they were in my mind and and really didn't want to be amongst them. Um, 
And and that really only started to change. It started in my mid-30s. And even then, it took me another 20-odd years to slowly adjust and actually recognise, firstly, that the big issues were with me, and secondly, what Christianity was really all about for me, which was something completely different to what I understood. The, the, The intellectual stuff, don't get me wrong, that was all correct and true. But in terms of the impact that it had on my life, that wasn't until well into my 50s. Um, and it was understanding. There's this concept of Christianity. You're probably familiar with the Lord's Prayer, Rodney, where it talks about our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, you know, thy, thy, thy uh, will be done, thy kingdom come. Um, that actually, that's not just, a, that's not just a, a, a cute quote. It actually means something. It means giving up your own uh, sense of self and submitting it to, to God. And it's it's got two purposes. One of them is about now, about the world in which we live, and then the one, and then the other phase of it is about the hereafter, where we're going to be once this thing's all over. And it took me a long time to get my head around that that applied to me. I understood it applied to other people, but I didn't think it applied to me. And as I've got more into recognizing that and becoming more subservient to my God, that's completely changed my life. But very late in my life, well. It must be hard because we are living in a hedonistic world. Yep. And so everyone around you is me, 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 me. Yep. Look how much I've got. Girls, 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 booze, 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 drugs, 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 fun, fun, fun. Yep. Everyone's doing it. And you think, well, I will too. Because particularly given your world, which was property investment, high-performing business, politics, and the media, because that's all a heady potion for the ego. In fact, it's all ego, right? You don't meet successful businessmen who don't have an ego or investors who don't have an ego or people in the media or politics that don't have an ego, it's like if you haven't got one, you better develop one fast. And then you've got to have this humbleness, and no one around you does. So you're, you're, it's quite tough, I think, because you know you can imagine 50 years ago, it would be very hard to be hedonistic because you'd be frowned upon and no one around you was. You know what I mean? When I was growing up, no one was boastful. Kids were very humble. Your parents were very humble. They wouldn't talk themselves up, and they wouldn't talk about themselves. You know, they they lived that Christian humility. Now we're the exact obverse, and what you're saying is in your head, you had a Christian understanding and belief, but when it came to um, when it came to living your life, you couldn't do it. Yes, so we're living in an environment that isn't positively reinforcing Christian values. Yeah, completely agree. Although it's interesting that because you use the word Christian values. And and a lot of people would say if we would only return to you know where we were in the fifties and prior to that and live the values that we previously lived that that we would be a Christian society, but that was part of my problem because that's not what makes you a Christian. 
and that's the bit I think people the the, the bit that really bit that people struggle with is that Christianity is not about us living a good life. And that's counterintuitive because most of us think it is. Christianity is not about me uh, living up to a standard that qualifies me to enter into God's presence. And the reality of Christianity is I actually can't do that. And that's what the New Testament tells me. If you, if you look at the two books of the Bible, and for those who aren't familiar, it's made up of two quite distinct books. It's the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament is a, a much longer book. It's, a, it's When I say a book, it's actually a series of books. Um, and it's essentially the story of the Jews. Uh, going back about three thousand years, so it's so it's it's the story of where they came from, what happened to them, the creation of the nation of of first Judah and then Israel, um, and what they did and God's displeasure with them. And then the New Testament, which is what Christianity is based on, is where Christ intervenes. Christ comes into the world. That's how the New Testament starts, and He sets up essentially a system for everybody else. And the, everybody else in the Bible is referred to as what they call Gentiles. That's a term you would have heard, Rodney. So you've got Jews and Gentiles, and the New Testament's primarily about the, the Gentiles and the way that they can be with God. Anyway, l- long ramble, but the point of that is to say that um, in the Old Testament, there's a whole lot of rules by which the Jews are required to live, which they actually don't live up to, repeatedly don't live up to. Um, and and there's some consequences to that that have carried on and are carrying on through till this day. In the New Testament, in the form of Christ, there's a second way that they can actually become Christians in this, or that they have it be in God's presence. And the second way is to say you can't possibly live up to the standard. Here's an alternative, and that's about that's the whole concept. You know, and, you know, it's one of these power terms that I talked about before, but the this idea of accepting Christ. So Christianity is not about living a good life. It it presupposes that once you become a Christian, you will make your best endeavors to live a good life. But that's not what makes you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is your belief in Jesus Christ. The stuff after that is what you would hope people will do. And that's the bit I didn't do. I, I went through all the intellectual stuff, understood all that in my late teens, but didn't do the second bit, which was about doing my best to reform my life and be a better and better person until much later in my life. And that only came about because you accepted Jesus into your life. Correct. Although I did that when I was 18, to be fair. So you could argue, you know, I, I joined the club, if you like, very early. I did that I did that on, and I believed it. Don't get me wrong. I believed it. I intellectually believed it and, you know, and, and, and did the stuff that you're required to do. But it didn't transform my life in the way that, people would expect a Christian's life to be transformed. And there'll be some people who might say to me, well, if it didn't transform your life, then you weren't really a Christian, and they might be right. Um, so tell me about this come to Jesus moment. Oh, so that it wasn't a moment, firstly. <laughs> it was a transition over quite a period of time, and it happened. Because you've really thought this through, right? You've yeah. really, you have spent, I would suggest the way you speak, it's been the biggest thing in your life to work all this through. Oh, totally. In fact, now it's the essence of who I am. That wasn't always true. It, it certainly is now. It's the essence of who I am. It's 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 a you know it's not my every waking moment, but it's a big chunk of them. But it wasn't always. What caused that to happen is a, my, my life is a life of two halves. To use a rugby analogy, in the first half. Uh, it was, I was going to say, you know, rugby woman and and, and what have you. I, um, it, it, it was all about me. It was all about what I wanted. I wanted to be wealthy. I wanted to be successful. I wanted to be famous. I wanted to be all that stuff. Um, and, and I had those things fleetingly over a long period of time. I had bits of them, but it never lasted. It was never sustainable. 
um, and and I could never hold on to success, partly uh, because I, I wasn't capable of it, and and partly because every time I seemed to get a little bit of fleeting success, it would, it would money was a really good example of that. I could get a bit of money together and then I'd lose it. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd invest it badly or or I wouldn't earn it in the quantities that I needed. And, and so I never got to a point where I was successful in, in terms of what the way I... It, it, you think it. there's some self-sabotage there? Oh, totally. Yeah, totally self-sabotage. Um, and then there was a second phase of a part of my life which started probably in my mid to late 40s where I started to realise that I was going through these repetitive patterns, self-sabotage, as you say, and other things that simply weren't getting where I wanted to go. And I started, and I'd love to say I did it all at once, but I didn't. I started to submit to God. I started to say, you need to help me with this. I'll give you a really good example of that. It was in my early 50s, and we had just started to get back into our uh, property investment a few years prior to that. Um, and we got to a point in one particular year where uh, it was looking like it was all going to come crashing down on us. And, I, and I, I spent three or four months trying to do whatever I could to make that work until I finally got to a point where, where I knew I couldn't take it any further. And I remember sitting down one night on my own and just giving it to God, saying, I can't handle this. This is as far as I can go in my own strength. You need to do the rest of it. And the following day, uh, and over the, the, a period of two or three months after that, the whole thing turned around in a way that wouldn't possibly have happened um, if I'd tried to do it myself. Now, I've got lots of examples of that now because I've learned to trust that. It's taken me a while, but I've learned to trust that process. And that happens now with, with not necessarily with big things, but with small things where I get to the point where in my own ability, I can do it. And then I give it to God and he never lets me down. He always, he takes me that extra. And, and to the point now where things that would really stress people, Rodney, and would really concern people just don't worry me at all. Because I know that it's my job to take it as far as I can and God will do the rest. He always does. Why would God worry about how much money you have or whether you oh, have so that's a really good question so so in that particular instance that was because I, I i had bills to pay on other people that i was was accountable to and and so you know if i had i would have been letting other people down and so he made sure that i didn't but again as i've got older money's less and less important it's and, and as i've as i've taken my eye off money um, and to be honest, that happened some years ago to the point where really that just wasn't important to me anymore. Suddenly I've been blessed monetarily. So so money has ceased to be an issue. Um, you know, God's given me wealth. He's given me a whole range of stuff that when it was important to to me, I, I, I couldn't get or wouldn't, didn't have. And now that it's not important to me, then suddenly it's there in abundance. But that stuff doesn't matter anymore. Money, I, you know, I talk to people now about money's a means to an end, and it is. It's simply a way of of doing the things you want to do. But my focus, and it's been my focus for a number of years, and I know you've read some of my articles, is about what can I do in the time that I have available to me to share what I know with other people? Because I have this view, and it's a very strongly held view that I've had for a number of years, that all of us, every single one of us, without exception, will one day soon stand in front of God. And he'll say, what did you do with your life? And he'll ask that question in two parts. The first will be, did you accept me? Big question. And if you did, what did you do with the resources and the time that I gave you? And it's that second part of that question that I'm focused on. And I want to be able to give a good account that I've done as much as I possibly can to help other people to understand what I understand. That's a huge focus. You know, you said before about the the reading and the thinking about it. That's where it's taken me. So 
God is using you, you think? I'd like to think so. I think he uses everybody who's open to to being used by him. I don't think there's any special th- anything special about me in that respect. In fact, if you look through history, he's done that with with many thousands of men and women. Um, in my own instance, um, because I often ask, I often ask, and I say, "Why me?" Because you know, of all the people that you could possibly have called upon to to, to do the work that I'm currently doing, there are far better people than I am. People who are far more suited, have got more skills. Um, and and I I assume it's because there, there there are particular reasons why he's doing that and not somebody else. I'm writing. I think I told you last time we talked. I'm writing a book at the moment. In fact, I've written two, um, and they are primarily targeted at an American audience. And so I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, here I am sitting in New Zealand, Rodney, writing to an audience with a view very different to the topic of the book uh, that I'm writing to to the view that I'm expressing. Why on earth would I be somebody that God would use to write that book? Why wouldn't you call upon somebody in the States who could do it? And I, I still don't know the entire reason. I just trust that he's got a reason for doing that. Um, or, or it's going to be a massive failure. <laughs> It'll be published and nobody will read it. Um, and, if it and, was a failure, if well, answer me this. Yep. If you had uh, not recovered financially, not been able to meet your debts and the people that relied upon you, would you have still accepted Jesus? Oh, unquestionably. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, there's a book in the Old Testament. So so it wasn't, because the way you described it, I was thinking, oh, yeah, man, if I said, oh, God, um, let's hope I win the Powerball Saturday, (laughs) right, and I did, I'd be a pretty good believer, right? Yeah, but I didn't win the Powerball, <laughs> so bugger up. You know what I mean? I do. It wasn't quite like that. I tell, no, and I'll tell you what, he never does it the way you think he's going to, because I often think about that stuff. I think about a lot of stuff. I often So think, you have a personal relationship with him? Oh, totally. Yeah, totally. It's a conversational thing, um, and, and it's many, many times in any given day. It's it's a conversation with somebody. That so so this con- you're having a conversation with God? Some people would say you're not well in the head. <laughs> hey, some people might be right. <laughs> <laughs> There's this voice talking to me, but he's made me a lot of money. I'm doing okay. Well, we don't, we don't I'm sorry we... to tease you, but we've got to have a bit of fun. No, right? no, no, it's fair enough. Because the say... one thing I love about Jesus and God is he has a sense of humor, right? Absolutely. Really. And those lefties and anti-Christians, they don't have an ounce of joy or fun in them. No, and, and it's interesting because their hatred of this stuff uh, it speaks volumes. So, so they're, they're well, that's e- partly why I'm in. Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> hey, listen, I should stress that when I say I talk to him, it's, it's, it's pretty much one-sided. I talk to him. I converse with him all the time. It's not as if he's talking back in my oh, head. Oh, I see. That's okay then. You're okay. You're well. But but he he does. There are certain times when he does when he does uh, when I say I want to use the right word here so as not to give the wrong impression. But he communicates back to me from time to time. But he doesn't do that, and I don't hear an audible voice. 
Um, he does that back through a variety of different ways. And it's hard to even put my finger on one because it changes all the time. Well, it's uh, so interesting because so many people through the COVID experience, it's been such a disruption to people's lives yep. and what to do and how to handle it. And I mean, Paul Brennan's quite open. You know, he yep. just said, you know, someone out there, tell me what to do next. And that literally is hosting Rally Check Radio and setting it up and being with us. And he felt that very, very strongly. And I think it's those challenging moments that you go. So I was going to ask you this, mm. Ashley, mm. but I think you've answered it. And it was this. What is a minimum, if you like, to be a Christian? Two parts. The minimum is the is that what they call the prayer of repentance and it's and it's it's a prayer to god which is to say i recognize that i've sinned sin's an interesting word too it's another one of those power words rodney and and it's sort of emotively charged all it means is not meeting god's standard so god's laid out his standard in the old testament sin's simply not meeting that standard so it's basically and, saying, and no one has no one has and no one can that's the that's the important point nobody can it's impossible to meet it so, so that prayer of repentance is saying, hey, look, I haven't met your standard. I recognize that I haven't. I recognize that there's nothing I can do. And then it's accepting what Christ did on the cross. And that's the key. It's it's the fact that God, because Christ in the form of God came here, lived amongst people for 33 years, got crucified, and the process of being crucified took that sin away from anybody who accepts him. So that's stage one. So that's the minimum entry. Then there's a second part to that process. So, so just get me this clear. Just, All good. So, yep. You know, I'm not wanting a DIY or anything, but I, <laughs> I, I, I'm trying to, you know, I've wasted 66 years, so I want to sort of. Never too late, mate. Get on board quick. Yeah, yeah. So you accept and you say to God, I have sinned. Yep. You understand that he gave his only son here on earth. Who died a horrible death. Yep. Deliberately. Deliberately. Yep. And in so doing, cleansed us of our sins so long as we recognize what? That he's the son of God? Rede recognize that he's the son of God and recognize the redemptive value of that act. And here's the really cool thing about it that even most Christians can't get their head around. He died not just for the sins that you admitted to that day, but everything you might do for the rest of your life. And that's a really hard concept for people to understand. So when you do that, let's say you're 18 like I was and you pray that prayer and he forgives those sins up until that point. He also forgives the next 40 or 50 years of sin, even though you haven't committed it yet. Because here's the thing, you don't stop sinning. You try to, but you can't. And that's a really powerful thing to get your head around because we all, because what we do is we people become Christians and then they do some terrible thing. They have an affair or something happens in their life and they think, oh, you know, I'm no longer in God's kingdom. That's not what he says. That isn't what he says. He says now and forever, everything you might ever do for the rest of your life. It's not a revolving door. It's a very powerful concept. So why should I read? Why should I resist the pleasures of the flesh? Because the pleasures of the flesh are the things that keep you away from God. 
um basically they are they are the things but particularly the stuff i mean there are some pleasures of the flesh that are completely godly i mean in a marriage yes. man and woman in a marriage nothing wrong with that um it's it's the stuff that he told you know the adultery the the fornication all, all that stuff where and by the way if you look at each of them i'm not going to list them all but if you look at each of those sins he doesn't do that because he wants to be the grinch he does it because every single one of those things is bad for you Every single one of those. That things. is absolutely the truth. Yep. And and as you get older, you can see that so clearly yep. as you look around life. Yep. Because the joy of producing, of some discipline in your life, of having a person that loves you through your life, of growing old together of raising children together, of having grandchildren together. And that is, you realize, the secret of a great life. Totally. And it's not going, not going off there, off, trying to be happy every day, trying to have fun every day. It's the exact opposite of it. My, my mother died last year, and it was a wonderful thing because – I spent the last week with her, and I had expected to be a wreck because uh, I loved her so dearly, and she so loved me, and we were so the same. We were just like peas in a pod, the two of us, my entire life. And she was 94, and she had a great last week, the two of us, together. And I found myself saying to people, that I don't know anyone, anyone that gave off more happiness or had more joy in her life than her. <laughs> and yet she had nothing in a way, you know, like compared to what people think they need. And she had quite a tough life. But, and she didn't get up in the morning and say, oh, what can I do for myself? She got up in the morning and worked hard for everyone around her and for her family. She her, her, her life was one of duty and responsibility. Yep. And I realized sitting that last week with her and thinking about her that, gosh, I wish I could have such a happy life myself. And then you realize achieving that joy and contentment is actually about doing things for others, is about loving other people, not about loving yourself and being kind to yourself, all that new age nonsense. And my mother wasn't a Christian. She rejected it. And um, But, uh, well, it's a funny thing, isn't it? Um, you're 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 right about the new age stuff, and the interesting thing there is if you if you distill that down to its basic imperatives, um, it's all about people who are on that side of the equation insisting on be able to being able to do the things that make them feel good, which it's is a terrible a terrible guide yeah. to life. Yeah, totally. And all the depression and all this self absorption everywhere you look. And you can see it affecting our young people, like yep. little kids being affected by it. 
and their parents and the way they interact. Um, let's versus- take let's take the sexual stuff. Let's take so so you know thirty years ago there was still some constraints in our education system and in our parenting around sexuality with our kids in their teens. Now we've got a system that's been around for 20 or 30 years, as you know, Rodney, that basically says, you know, you should be able to experiment with sexuality. Oh, you, should- you can't stop it, you say. You, you you can't, you have to, you just have to give it. Yep, but here's the thing. So by the time you get married, if you get married at all, you know, if you're in your 20s or 30s, you might have been through 10, 15, 20 sexual partners. That screws with your head. That yes. absolutely screws with your head. So that's absolutely. God saying don't do that stuff because I want to, I don't want you to have fun. That's God saying I know the impact that's going to have on if you do it and I know what's in store for you if you wait. I and agree. Really quaint and old-fashioned concept, but it's true. It's true. Yeah. It's absolutely true. And um, have, and you can see now why these pop stars are all so miserable. Yep. Because they live, you think when you're growing up, you think, oh, I'd love to be that pop star or that football player and have all those girls throwing themselves <laughs> at me because all you want yourself is just a girlfriend, right? And you can't have one. And it's it's a trite thing to say that it's empty, but you can actually see that now versus starting dating with a view to marriage. And like I'm trying the to say- The pressures that. on kids now are overwhelming. The pressures on kids are overwhelming to, to mm-hmm. engage in sexual activity. It's a very, very difficult time. So, so when you're submitting yourself to God and falling short, but knowing the standard, Living that standard is the key, literally, to living a good life and dying content. Uh, Totally. In in fact, four words define the difference between the view that we talked about before, which was the view predominantly on the left, although many on the right have it as well, which is the, the, the idea of being able to do what I want to do. The counter to that, the, the 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 true Christian view, four words, thy will be done, which is about saying to God, you decide, you tell me what you want for my life, and I will do my best to mold my life into doing those things. Now we never get it perfect. I, I you know, I'm I'm sitting here preaching about all this stuff. I constantly do things I shouldn't do. And I go back to God and I apologize and we start the whole process again and he accepts that. And you know, that's an ongoing process which I'll continue in for the rest of my life because I'm not perfect and I never will be, but it's the desire to want to try and do that that makes the difference. It's the desire yes. to say, you tell me, your will be done, not mine. You're having a standard. Having a standard which you're trying to adhere to, yeah. Yes, and it might be a standard that you fall short of, but not what st- we've got we've got now is people living their lives without a standard. Yep, and and, and wouldn't even think to look at this stuff. They've we've, we've, We live in the society where we think that we can create utopia on our own. Whereas a society, we think that if we just keep passing enough laws and, you know, doing enough things that eventually will create this utopian society where everything will be perfect and everybody will be happy, it's a lie. It's a farce. It's a lie. It will never, ever happen. It's, it's, it isn't possible. And yet we, we, yet we do it. Tell me about heaven. 
So there's two two aspects to heaven. The first of those is that so there's this concept in Christianity of return of the return of the Christ, what we call the second coming. And that's this idea that Christ comes back physically to earth, and whereas the first time he was there to suffer and to and to take on the sins of the world and 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 so that we could become Christians and we could rely on him. The second stage is about and I don't want to put too harsh a term on this because it sounds terrible, but about punishment. It's and it's and, and in the first instance, it's about basically dealing with with those parts of the world that have continued to to, to be sinful for the last you know two thousand years, and then the second part of that punishment is personal. It's about dealing with us individually, and that's what I talked about before. I talked about standing in front of God. Every single one of us will stand in front of Him at some stage, me included. But the difference between Christians and everybody else is that with Christians, they've got a free pass because they've accepted that redemption that he's provided for them. Everybody else, those people who've had the opportunity and have refused it, um, and when I say punishment, the punishment will be to look at all the things they did in their life before he essentially exiles them forever. So it'll be to say, I'm not just doing this just to be mean. Here's what you did. I gave you a pass and you chose not to accept that pass. Therefore, you can never you'll, you'll never be able to come into my presence again. Anyway, the interesting thing about that, and there's some debate around the timing of it, but that, that the there's a period after that where the earth continues for another, depending on who you talk to, another thousand or so years. Um, and I think you and I talked about this last time, and I genuinely believe that that's the period of time where people who were in a position where they they never heard the gospel. They lived in parts of the world where they weren't exposed. Oh, like African baby, yeah. All of that, yeah. Kids who were aborted, all of those people will have a chance to live a proper life and make that decision for themselves over that thousand years. And then at the end of that, talks about the whole lot basically being wiped away and and a completely new heaven and new earth created. And that's heaven. So, so no, I don't and know. And is what that, that in the New Testament? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And right through from from all the way through the Gospels, all the way through to Revelation, it talks about that in different ways. And so if I didn't accept Christ into my life before I die. Yep. Too late. I don't get part to that thousand years. No, no. You get a meeting. (laughs) (laughs) It's not much fun. (laughs) It's not much fun, right? Not much fun, no. No. It's like the worst headmaster you've ever met. Pretty much. Pretty much. And he basically says that. He says, you know, he comes back the second time as, you know, his role the second time, not as pleasant as the first one. Um, And it's interesting because you get into, you know, I'm I'm a great uh, reader. So tell me, tell me, tell me this, tell me this, tell me this. Um, You have a wife now? I do. And you have children at home now? No, kids are all kids are all okay. adults these days. So your wife is a Christian? She is. Because if she wasn't, it would drive you nuts. Yeah, it's, I mean, there's there's a phrase in the New Testament from Christ. He talks about not being unequally yoked with non-believers, which means you know don't don't be married to somebody who doesn't share your values. It's not always that easy though, and and often you know one one partner in a relationship will become a Christian before the other. And and uh, you know it might be years before the other one makes that decision, if at all. Um, and so that's not always within our control. Uh, it's one thing to say don't marry a Christian. It's another thing to not be a Christian yourself when you get married and make that decision later on. But and what um, about children? You 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 must if you had a child. Yep. Who's what the prodigal son or prodigal daughter? 
that would be heartbreaking if you're a Christian. Yeah, that happens a lot. There are lots of people who who bring up Christian kids and the kids choose not to follow that lifestyle um, later on. Although, as you say, that prodigal son story is a common one. Interestingly, I um, uh, a few years ago met up with a guy I went to school with who was a Christian when I wasn't. He came from a Christian family and he'd moved a long way away from his faith and we, he'd done very successfully in his career, worked for Mars Corporation in Australia and around the world. And he... Um, he came back to New Zealand with his wife. He'd retired and and was re-examining all of those things in his late fifties that he had. I wouldn't say walked away from, but they they weren't important to him. So him and I had reached a very simple, very similar point in our lives. Mm. Um, and and you know, God's timing, God's timing, and and he was actually instrumental in helping me with some of the stuff that I've been working on. So, do you think that you feel special? because you have this relationship with God and can see what others can't see and because they're not living by the rules that God set are not living a joyful life and have this judgment coming their way. Depends what you mean by special, Rodney. Do I feel superior? Absolutely not. Um, I feel very privileged to to be in the position I'm in, and I, you know, I, I I thank God constantly that I had the opportunity to do that when others might not have had. Do I feel special in the sense that I have an insight which which makes sense of the world in a way that perhaps it doesn't for others? Yes, I do. Um, and that, again, that's just developed. That, that there's wisdom comes with age, and Christian wisdom is the best wisdom of all because if if you if you take it on board and you 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 allow it to imbue you with its value. Um, it gives you an insight into why things happen that that others don't. Having said that, there's lots of Christians that choose not to avail themselves of that. So, so there's lots of Christians out there who are Christians, but they're not necessarily wise. But I'd like, to and think- there's lots of Christians out there, presumably, who are going to be harshly judged. Well, no, by God, yes, that's not what He tells us. In fact, He tells us quite the opposite. If they've made that decision, if they have, if they have availed themselves of of that free gift that he's made for them. No, they their their sin has been wiped away. Um there is a we talked to, you asked me a question before though that I didn't answer the second part. There is a second aspect to your faith though. So the first bit is the getting into the club, which you and I talked about the last time we talked. And that's that's that accepting Christ um and and recognizing who he is and 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 doing your best to try and live your life. The second part is doing things during your life to try and and um uh, do the things that you believe that he would want you to do to further his kingdom. This thing they call the Great Commission in the in, in the New Testament, and there's a reward for that. And that's an interesting concept because a lot of Christians don't understand that, and they think when you talk that way, you're talking about getting into heaven by something called works. And that's not. You can't work your way into heaven, but once you're there, you can absolutely do things that that improve your lot in heaven. Um, and they're around doing your best to share your faith. Um, looking for ways to, you know, feed the poor, clothe the clothe the poor, and whatever, all all that stuff it talks about in the New Testament, and and share your wealth and all those other things which which you're led to do by by the exemplary example that Christ gave from His own life. So there is a second level to it, but that's not about getting you into heaven. You can't do that, but you can do things that give you reward if you like. To be fair, as I get older, that's actually not my reason for doing it. Uh, my reason for doing it is because I want to please God. But but 
that aspect of it's real, and Christ talks about it in the New Testament a lot. And God has blessed you for a God's purpose. God's blessed you enormously. For a purpose. What about a heinous person? A heinous person who's accepted Jesus. Yeah, I'm not entirely sure that you could ever actually really accept Jesus if you were heinous. Um, I understand the question you're asking. You know, the obvious one is people say, what if uh, Hitler accepted Jesus on his deathbed? Um, I'm not, and it's a fair question. Um, I'm not entirely sure that you could, I, I, because there's a there's an element of you have to believe what you're doing. So so when you make that decision, you can't fake it. No, you can't fake it. It's not just the words. In fact, it actually says if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. So there's two conditions to that. One of them is just say it, and the other condition is you actually have to believe it. And I don't know that a heinous person they might say the right stuff. I don't know that they would necessarily mm. believe the right stuff. But to be honest, that's not my judgment call or yours. That's God's. Because only God knows what goes on inside us. So only he can make a decision as to whether that person's genuine or not. And you know you're genuine. Oh, I know I'm genuine. Yeah, I know how I feel about God. And it doesn't matter to me what anybody else thinks except God. And I'm good with that. I know. Well, what a wonderful place to end this conversation. But I think, Ashley, we're going to need more. Anytime you want to talk about this topic. Well, it's... um, you're so open about it, and I'll be interested. I, I don't know whether this is Rodney's journey because uh, I are heading there and struggling all at the same time. <laughs> and I realize talking to you what it means. And it's not just saying it. It's got to be very deep. As I said last time we talked, read the first four books of the New Testament, yes. what they call the Gospels of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's your starting point. I and watch The that. Chosen. We talked about The Chosen. I, the- do you know, I sat down with my kids and I said, this is a great movie, going to watch it. And we watched episode one. It was so dark. They were under the cushions. Um, it gets better. By about episode three, it starts to get real. Good. I'm not going to get them to episode three. I can tell you, <laughs> it was very dark and somber and blood and screaming and like that. Saying, "What the heck? This is." A... And like my son's a Christian, and yeah. he was saying, "Oh, I don't know about this. This isn't my Jesus." <laughs> <laughs> start them on, start them on episode. Three. I think I think I'll start them with reading. Because yeah. um, him and I might do some reading and talking together. Ashley Church, uh, businessman, property investor, politician, family man, three times over, but Christian and well familiar with his sins and shortcomings, but very comfortable with where he has got to in his life and very pleased to share his life like an open book because he knows it's going to be all out there before the creator. And nothing that we could do could compare to what God can do. And so he is open like a book like that. And here's me sort of groping in the dark and a little bit repressed and tight and a bit of a knot inside. But um, with Ashley's help and your help, we will see more and more. And it's part of this beauty of 
free speech, communication, fellowship, gospel. And Ashley, I thank you so much for coming on your show. If you've, uh, it's a great pleasure and an honor to have you on. Always very welcome, Rodney. And uh, you can email us at inbox at radicheck.radio. You can text us at 2057. I'd love to hear from you. And um, I have been sent uh, material to read, and I'm working my way uh, with it. I'm in a busy time at the moment, so I'm falling rapidly behind people's suggestions. But I very much appreciate it. And I do think with this radio and with the guests we have, and with the audience we have, that we have a wider family and that we are truly blessed. And when you read the media, it's a nasty world. It's a self-absorbed world. It's a mean and divisive world. And it's so wonderful to get people along on the show like Ashley. And it's, it is a beautiful world. And you realize that we just all need to count our blessings. Uh, this is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on Reality Check Radio. Thank you for listening, and uh, we'll keep this up. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde, and it's time for Mailbag. And remember, you can text me at 2057. Please send me an email, inbox at realitycheck.radio, and let me see what we've got here. This is from Catherine. Hi, Rodney. I really enjoyed listening to your talk with Alwyn Paul. Thank you, Catherine. I felt really glad to hear you and Alwyn's validation of my concerns over the relationship and sexuality education curriculum. I'd like to do anything I can to help oppose this curriculum. Good for you, Catherine. I recently passed out flyers of my concerns of this to my school, Mellons Bay School, and I got told to stop influencing other parents by my school principal upon threat of action. Oh, my goodness. Oh, can't do that. Influence other parents. Oh, goodness me. Later, I made a speech to my school board of trustees meeting against a new relationship and sexuality education curriculum. Give me a YouTube link. If this speech can be helpful in any way, even just as an encouragement to you and other parents, please have a listen and share. Thanks, Catherine. Let me have a look. Here we go. Oh, you can Google it on YouTube. It's called Parents Give Parent Gives Warning to Board of Trustees over NZ Sexualized Curriculum. Have a Google. Have a look. Good on you, Catherine. Rodney, uh, why aren't the legal community all over these free speech erosions? Perhaps you need to ask the Law Society from Andrew. That's a great question. Where are our legal beagles when it matters? Hiding under their beds, I suspect. I am so glad our kind, wonderful government wants to keep us safe from... <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I got the giggles. Oh, I'm so glad our wonderful, kind government wants to keep us safe from our own thoughts. As everybody knows, thinking can lead to speaking. And if we allow people to openly speak about things, who knows where it will lead? Obviously, the only way to keep us safe is to close down these wicked platforms, like RCR, which are causing so much distress. Cheers and thank you for so much for your work from Jeff. Thank you, Jeff. I'm 
I'm very, very sorry because I um I cracked up and had to stop <laughs> had to stop myself. Uh print doctor, merch screen printers would never discriminate. We're printers of the people for the people. Good for you, print doctor. I'll look you up. On a serious note, Arden is currently knee-deep in the censorship of free speech in her new capacity at Harvard overseas. Cheers, Jeff, indeed. Here's from Kaz. Rodney, please try really hard to stop interrupting people. It gets a bit annoying to listen to. Much appreciated, Kaz. Thank you, Kaz. I'm getting better, Shirley. Oh, my goodness. Morning, Rodney. The name of the movie you're referring to is The Lives of Others. Oh, my goodness. That was it. Wasn't that a great movie? Where they, where that spy, that agent of the state, was listening in on the, that family. Set in East Berlin in the eighties, it is a relevant movie to us in New Zealand now that our government is determined to censor our population. Cheers, Simon. Thank you for Simon. That was a great movie. All I can say, Rodney, is try that in a small town, New Zealand, two degrees of separation. Our politicians and their fellow useful idiots would be wise to take note. I uh, love this chat, Rodney. I'm nearly 40, but grew up in the old way in a small central Otago town, and my memories are much like you and Wally. Yeah, it was great. Rodney, old men in Thai has got us to this place. I do not trust Thai wears. A serpent and a Thai is still a serpent. I have to think about that. Ties, men in Thai has got us to this place. Rodney, we used to have a governor general that had some power, and now I might as well say goodbye to them and save us some money. Well, we've still got a Governor-General. They've still got enormous power, and they're reluctant to use it, of course, because democracy in Parliament and Governor-Generals never exercised uh, their power in New Zealand in one sense. Funnily enough, all regulations and bills have to get the royal assent, and I do recall regulations being sent back by the Governor-General when I was a minister. Uh, because he would have questions, it was a he then, of ministers, and if they couldn't answer it, including the finance minister, he'd say, well, you know, go away and work it up and come back. So they did do something. Um, but as you say, free speech, where's their Governor-General? Hi, Rodney. On ZB around 12.15, not only did Kerry Allen resist arrest, she fled the scene of the accident. Yes, we now know that and was only found after police dogs were called in and tracked it to over 500 metres from the accident, Steve. Yeah, gets worse, right? I don't think we have had it explained to us what she was doing and why, whether she had an accident or rammed the car. Uh, was she alone in the car? Where had she been? And the idea of refusing a blood test, suspicious, right? Because why would you refuse a blood test? I'll let that one hang. Hi, Rodney. Love RCR. You do all do a great job. Just constructive criticism. Tane did not get a chance to speak to any of the issues, maybe just giving space for guests to speak more. I notice Paul and yourself over-talk some guests quite often. No offence intended, as I love this little pocket of sanity in this wheels falling off kind of world. All my love. Well, thank you. And I guess with Tane, I thought he was just popping me questions. It was sort of a reverse interview. But I take your point. Rodney, if we all follow the do not comply mantra, we will clog the system. We will indeed. To hell with all of them. Hi, Rodney. Loving your program as usual. You just heard you talking about Kerry Allen's car crash. I read this attached article yesterday written by Cam Slater on the BFD. Scroll down to see Stuff's account of the accident. It has details. 
Yeah. Doesn't didn't get better. And I don't think we've scratched it. I doubt we'll ever know what happened because the powers that be, they'll know, the journalists will know, the politicians will know, the opposition will know, but we, the people, can't know. It's a minister of the crown, for goodness sake. We're not even allowed to ask questions, let alone get answers about what the hang was going on with the minister out at night driving drunk and smashing into a car and running away from the police and refusing to accompany them, and then I understand refusing a blood test. Oh, my God, that needs explanation. Rodney Hyde, thanks for the show today and your frank commentary on the attempt by this tyrannical government to destroy our beautiful country and control us. Obviously, Chippy was getting a special briefing in China on how to do it. Man, I think Chippy could teach the Chinese. Uh, and Jacinda Dern certainly could. Hi, Rodney. I'll make a submission or an objection against the free speech regulation, but will they take any notice of our submissions? That worries me. Kind regards, John. No, they probably won't, John, but it is election year and we have to register and it'll get harder and harder for them. The worst thing we can do is just make it easy and to suggest to them that we don't care. Trust me, politicians worry about what people are thinking and what they're prepared to do. And if we can't be bothered to sign a submission, they'll think it's all good in Kiwiland. We'll carry on. Hello, Rodney. What a great job you're doing holding up the plumb line of truth over all the shenanigans that are being imposed upon us. Well, thank you for that. In the name of government, keep up the good work along with the rest of the RCR team. Truth will always prevail in the end, HLT. Yes, it will. The truth will always uh, will always uh, prevail. Here's one from Will who wants to talk to me about free speech. Give him a call. I will do. Well, um, from Jim, hi, Rodney, my hearty congratulations to you all and the team at RCR. You've become a vital link to the public to ensure we retain our democratic principles and in particular, our freedoms. Well, thank you, Jim. Hi, Rodney, I'm absolutely delighted to hear you have come to faith in Jesus Christ. That is wonderful news, praise God. It's funny I've been listening to you for a while and I could hear your search for truth. Faith is a journey and the most important thing is not how close or far you are to God right now, but the direction you're facing. Well, that's a lovely thought because I know the direction I'm facing. Your face is turned towards God. He will guide and lead you in the plans he has for you. Many are the plans in a man's heart, but God directs his path, Proverbs 16, 9. Do you have someone who can will disciple you. Finding someone who can disciple you is essential for Christian go growth, as is being part of a church, which the Bible describes as the body of Christ. Interesting. The church is not perfect. Ours used vaccine passes, and the unvaxxed had to meet separately in a preschool area. We thrived. We became most excellent friends and allies. We pray together regularly for the church, and we have forgiven them for separating us. Isn't that great? Gosh, I love Christians. Um, isn't that isn't that a wonderful belief system to carry on and to thrive and to forgive? And isn't that the wonderful message that Jesus gave us? It's a beautiful message. It's a beautiful way to live your life in that knowledge particularly in troubled times when it's also directionless. So you can see which way I'm facing for sure. 
Staying in the body is vital, and there are many verses in the Bible about this unity in Christ. Bless you, dear Rodney, and you continue to seek his face and press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize, prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. Philistine 3.14, kind regard, Sarah. Yes, I just listened to your interview with Ashley Church and found what he had to say most interesting, although as a Christian I felt sad to hear he didn't place value in being part of a local church community. I did too, actually, thinking about that. Hi, Rodney. I absolutely love your show, particularly your sessions with Wally. In response to your comments about growing flowers with Wally, I'm not a flower person myself, but I'm I'm going to be adding flowers to my veggie garden this year to help attract the pollinators, and particularly I want to use flowering legumes for the free nitrogen also. Making the garden look better is just an added bonus. Cheers, Nathan. Sorry, further to add to my previous message, Rodney, also use flowers and other plants that you donate to not only attract predatory insects for pest control, but also to use the sacrifice crops that pests prefer so they don't eat our veggies. So five great reasons to plant flowers. And your veggie can. Thank you, Nathan. That's very good. What a wonderful mailbag we get. What wonderful people. And I will work better to not interrupt people. Uh, send me a text 2057. Email me inbox at Reality Check Radio. We are building a wonderful, caring, loving, supportive community. Thank you so much for that. It is going to be so important, I feel. Um, as we go through the next little while. You're on Really Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. You're on Really Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. I wonder, dear listeners, if this radio station has come to mean as much to you as it has to me. I can't quite believe it. Actually, I've done radio before. I've written columns. I've been on quite a few radio shows. But nothing has affected me and influenced me so much as Reality Check Radio. And you, the listeners, with your emails and texts and comments, and when I'm out and about coming up to talk to me and being there. And it's the same feeling I got at the parliamentary protest that I felt this, dare I say, brotherhood or sisterhood or humanhood of respect for each other when I had been feeling so alone. Now, my family, we're very close, but outside of that, alone. And I had always thought that I could manage on my own, I always thought that I could understand how the world was and make my way through it. And when COVID or the policy responses to COVID hit, I was totally disorientated, totally thrown off course. I couldn't make sense of it because I didn't understand why people were so scared. I didn't understand why the government was so tyrannical. I couldn't understand why everyone was so compliant. I couldn't understand why friends and colleagues just goose-stepped in line to what was being asked of them by government. 
I couldn't understand when I asked a question why I'd get sort of shouted down and treated badly. And I was just left confused, wondering if I'd gone mad, couldn't see something that everyone else could see. And then I walked into the parliamentary protest and there were thousands like me. And it was validation. I guess we need it. It made me realize that I wasn't alone. I wasn't the only one. And it was also too, ah, that's it, isn't it? It was the joy and the fun and the laughter of the protest, the music, the poetry, the beauty, which had been sucked out of us through the COVID response because you weren't allowed to have fun. And they're all po-faced, aren't they? All the COVID idiots are so po-faced, so bureaucratic, so, I mean, I guess there's not a lot of fun in being a tyrant. So I've heard it then, but since then, I don't know whether I'm more aware, but of course it's everywhere you look. Climate change, oh, the oceans are boiling, oh, we're all going to die, oh, we've got to shut down farming. Why? Oh, climate change, methane, how does this work? Oh, scientists, models, UN says it does. Oh, my goodness, we're all going to die. Can't do this. Ruin your economy. Rob your children's education. What? And, and again, when you ask it, when you inquire of it, no one can explain it to you other than to be rude to you. And then we had that experience of watching Kelly J. King come to New Zealand to say that, you know, our mums should be able to go to the toilet without men ogling them. And our daughters should be able to go to the changing rooms without men ogling them. Perfectly reasonable. She got attacked and shut down. I can understand why there might be a few that would do that, but our media joined in. All our political leaders joined in. I didn't hear any politicians speaking up in support of free speech or women or men for that matter. And again, you feel so bereft, so disoriented, so alone. It's the same feeling. And we have this radio. And I come onto this radio show and I can say what I think. Where can you do that now? I can interview who we like, and they can say what they think. And we can disagree. We don't argue. No need. We disagree with respect. We go away and think about it. We develop our views. I have listeners emailing me, disabusing me about this and that, and I love it sending me more information, and I love it. And then you realize this isn't happening anywhere now in New Zealand. In fact, the only place this is happening is on Reality Check Radio. You can't at work if you work in a school, if you work in a plumbing business, you can't say what you think any longer. Not, not, not because it's rude. 
just because it doesn't follow the narrative. And here we have Reality Check Radio that does it. There's a whole lot of views that were standard 20, 30 years ago that everyone believed in that now cannot have a platform on TV, radio, or print. And if a politician spoke them, they'd be shot down in flames. Like, what is a woman? (laughs) Oh, my goodness me. Oh, my goodness me. And that somehow having cows is killing the planet. Oh, my goodness me. Oh, my goodness me. Or that bad flu, we have to shut down everything and hide under our beds and not talk to each other and mask our kids and jab them with an experimental gene therapy. Oh, my goodness me. And you can't question that except there's one place, and it's here, Bradley Check Radio. And I don't know about you, but it's been the best thing for me because it's made me feel young again. It's made me feel alive. It's made me feel positive about a future because I realize that there's a lot of good people out there. And in fact, we good people are the majority. And there's a strange thing happening because you feel that there's a counterbalance growing. There's a sense of frustration growing. And we're still in a democracy, just. We still have free speech, just. And so those in Wellington, those activists, those politicians, those bureaucrats, we get talking to each other. We can hold them all to account. And we will. And as my colleague Paul Brennan says, we will win because we have humanity. We're human. We have joy. We have laughter. Don't see that on the other side. And we have each other. And I want to thank you from the bottom of my soul for you being here with me. Because I thought I was an island, you know. But I quickly realized in COVID I wasn't. And I have a very deep sense of community with Radley Check Radio and with you, our listeners. I will always respect you. I'll always love you. I'll always be here for you. Because of everything you've done for me and are doing for me and that we're doing for each other. You with Real Talk with Rodney Hyde, Radley Check Radio. Thank you from the bottom of my heart, from the bottom of my soul for listening. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. 
You've heard the words open, fair, both sides of the story. It's easy to say them, but practicing them often seems like a bridge too far. New Zealand, it's time for a reality check. Reality check. RCR, Reality Check Radio. Rational discussion, common sense, and open debate for real. With me, Paul Brennan. You know, you just can't make this stuff up. You couldn't write the script. Veteran broadcaster Peter Williams. Where is the evidence they actually make a difference? It turns out that was a very fair question to ask. Taking on the mainstream, Chantel Baker. Mainstream media, as usual, in their little perch. The man who cares so much and whose background is for real, Rodney Hyde. The doctors don't believe them. They can't get ACC. They can't work. They're told it's all in their head. Along with a raft of contributors to inform, entertain and bring the truth back to New Zealand media. It's time for a reality check, all right. RCR, Reality Check Radio at www.realitycheck.radio. We've arrived. You've been listening to Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR, Reality Check Radio. You're on Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. It's Reality Check uh, Radio. What a wonderful morning we've had. Um, Actually, Church gave us food for thought, did he not? He's always so reflective and so wonderful. It makes me think and makes me want to read more, and I will. And also, we had Lauren and Daryl from The Good Farm. Oh, my goodness. Are they living the dream? I love the raw milk. I love raw milk. It's so delicious, and my kids grew up on it. I'm having trouble accessing any at the moment. But also the wider story of how they've fused business with um, producing good, healthy food and making a family extended family community out of it and a business. It's just so inspiring, isn't it? What you can do, what people can do with good spirit. That was wonderful. And I'm certain if I'm anywhere near the Bay of Plenty, I'm going to be going to the good farm to have a taste and to have a look. So thank you for listening. Thank you to our guests who are so absolutely wonderful. And thank you for emailing me. And texting me, 2057 for a text. Email me, inbox at reallycheck.radio. And remember this, you can now come in and support us for a little bit um, and become RCR Foundation members. You'll be part of the team in a genuine way rather than just listening, which is great, just emailing, which is great, just texting, which is great. You can also become a member. And you'll get the sense of pride that comes from contributing to something that's big, that's going to change the world, simply by demanding honesty from our legacy media and respect for each other and allowing dissenting views and allowing for a search for truth rather than just a received government narrative. Hard to believe that we have to stand up for that in New Zealand in 2023, but we do. And that's what RCR is doing. And entertaining, and being thought-provoking, and educating, and educating everyone. Because, boy, I've learned more 
in the time I've been at RCR than at any other time of my life. It's been wonderful. I've been challenged more and I've learned more. So you can become a special member. Hop across uh, to learn about the membership at www.realitycheck.radio. And do so before Sunday because we're going to have a special event. Uh, You're going to come backstage, as it were, on the 6th of August. And I'll be there along with the wonderful Peter Williams, the wonderful Paul Brennan, the wonderful Cam Slater, and the wonderful Marie Buskey. And you'll be there too. It's for members. So please sign up and become a member. And give your support to RCR Radio. This is Real Talk. It's Rodney Hyde. You're on Reality Check Radio. Thank you for listening.